If you have your copy of God's Word, I hope that you do. I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. The title of our message today is Holy Walk, Pursuing Sexual Purity. Holy Walk, Pursuing Sexual Purity. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. I'm going to begin by reading this passage of Scripture And then we'll dive in, studying it and learning how we can apply it to our lives. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 through 8. God's Word says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness." Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you imagine for a moment that I have two cups in my hands. And you'll know why in just a minute I'm making you imagine it and I don't actually have these cups in my hands. I want you to imagine in one hand... I'm holding a cup that falls into the category of everyday dinnerware. I mean, it's just the cup that you just grab out of the out of the cabinet, and uh, you just need you a quick glass of water. Or you sit down at breakfast, need you some orange juice or whatever. It's just your everyday kind of cup. And the other hand, I'm holding a cup that falls into the category of fine china, specifically the fine china that's been passed down from my great grandmother. Now you know why I didn't actually bring them today. I thought about it, but I do not trust myself enough for that cup to make it here and make it back uh, home and uh, in one piece. And so I'm just going to make you imagine those two things. Both of them are cups. They're both cups. They both hold liquid in them. They're both useful, but they are both different. The fine china is prettier. It's, it's more valuable And it is more easily broken. If I misuse the regular glass cup and it gets broken, then I can just go to the store and buy another one. If I misuse the the fine china cup, I can't just run up to the store and grab another one. In fact, I might not be able to find another one like that. It's going to be almost impossible to replace. If I drop the the cup, the regular everyday cup, and it breaks, what's my reaction going to be? I'm just going to say, oh, well, I... I wish I hadn't dropped it, but, you know, they make more of them. It's okay. If I drop the piece of fine china that's been passed down from my great-grandmother, I'm not just going to go, eh, oh, well, it's, it, it, no big deal. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to be upset about that. I'm going to have to apologize to my mom. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to uh, probably feel some sense of shame that I wasn't more careful with that precious, valuable Church, there are certain things in life that are more precious and valuable than other things. 
And often those things are also more fragile and more easily broken than the less valuable things. In fact, their delicate nature is often what actually adds to their value, like a piece of fine china. Because of this, the delicate and valuable things often come with a stringent or more stringent set of rules and often a more repeated set of rules for how to use them. Just think about it. I don't know if this is like, like this in your house, but in, in my house growing up, uh, there were different rules for using the regular dinnerware versus the fine china. There were. We couldn't put the fine china in the microwave. We, we couldn't put the fine china in the dishwasher. Uh, we couldn't just grab a piece of fine china out and go jump on the couch and eat a snack or go sit out on the porch, and we didn't take it out to picnics, right? There, there was a stringent set of rules for those dishes. Not only were there more rules, there were also more warnings given when it came to using the fine china versus the everyday dinnerware. My mom didn't warn us every time we pulled just a regular plate or a cup out of the cabinet, you better be careful with that. She didn't, she didn't do that. You better believe every time we, we use the fine china, which we did use it. I know some people just put it up on the shelf and never use it. We did use it from time to time. But every time that stuff got put out, we were warned, all right, this is the special dish. These are special dishes. Uh, you got to be careful. Pay attention to what you're doing. Now, here's the thing. She didn't make the rules and give the warnings because she didn't want us to enjoy using the fine china. In fact, the opposite was true. She made the rules and she gave the warnings because she understood how valuable and precious these dishes were. And she wanted us to enjoy using them. In fact, if we obeyed the rules and heeded her warnings, we would be able to enjoy the beauty of these dishes for years and years and years to come. The rules and the warnings were good and they were loving and they were necessary. God has created a good and beautiful and precious gift for humanity. But the beauty and the preciousness of this gift is found in its delicate nature. It's not something that can be misused and broken and then simply shrugged off. Ah, it's it's no big deal. Instead, its misuse leads to deep brokenness and a deep sense of loss and regret. The good and beautiful and precious and fragile gift that I'm referring to is God's gift of sex. To humanity, God created the first man and woman and brought them together. Scripture says of this first union in Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. <laughs> now, it's interesting, it's interesting that a couple of Bible verses like these, combined with me saying the word sex on a Sunday morning, will make us squirm in our seats. And yet, as I thought about this, We seem to have no problem sitting comfortably on our couches at home while listening to and watching sexual talk and innuendo and possibly even sexual activity for hours in movies and in TV shows. I actually think it ought to be the other way around. God created sex, and he speaks about it often in his word, actually. And therefore, we should welcome and even enjoy learning about this topic in the context of the church where God's word is held up as the authority for our lives and where we can receive his rules and warnings about this delicate and precious gift. Perhaps, perhaps a comfortable engagement with this topic within the context of the church will then lead to some much needed discomfort among God's people when the topic is spoken of and practiced in unbiblical ways on television or in movies or social media or at work or at school or wherever we're at out in our society. Today, um, I want us to learn from this next passage in, in Paul's uh, letter, 1 Thessalonians. 
Um, and, uh, and if you'll just back up just a, a verse or two, in chapter 4, verse 1, uh, last week we saw that uh, Paul, um, he, he encouraged, he challenged, he urged, he asked uh, the Thessalonians to walk in obedience to Jesus so that God would be pleased and to do that more and more, to, to, to continue growing, continue growing, never stop growing in their walk with the Lord. Now Paul addresses a particular area of life in which they are to be walking in holiness. And that is this, a holy walk is one of pursuing sexual purity. In, in these verses, uh, verses 3 through 8, uh, we learn this. As a Christian, your submission to God should lead you to resist sexual immorality. Your submission to God should lead you to resist sexual immorality. As we follow Paul into this topic, uh, we need to realize the culture in, into which he was writing. You see, the Greek and the Roman world at this time was completely, completely overrun with sexual immorality. I mean, not only was sexual immorality just accepted as just a literally normal part of everyday life, but many people in this day and time engaged in sexual immorality as means of worshiping their false gods. I mean, this, is, this is how they, how they worship, was engaging in sexually immoral practices. As sexually immoral as our culture is today, the culture in which the Thessalonian believers live probably made the immorality of our culture pale in comparison. I know that may be hard for us to believe, um, but it's probably, probably true. But here's the thing. It wasn't just that these Thessalonian believers are surrounded by a culture that is sexually immoral. They were saved out of sexually immoral lifestyles. I mean, these were new believers just a few months or a year earlier, they were engaged in all of this activity. Even some of these new believers were worshiping false gods by engaging in sexual immorality. And so they desperately need to be reminded of God's rules and they need to be warned over and over again. You see, they were facing pressure as believers, both from the culture around them and from the fleshly desires that waged war in their hearts. So Paul writes this out of love to them, to watch over them, to protect them. Now, while our culture today might not have reached the level of immorality the Thessalonian culture had reached, I think we would all agree that we're on a fast track in that direction. And therefore, we, too, desperately need to be reminded and warned to walk in holiness in this area of our lives. Now, I want you to remember, we, we spoke about this a little bit last week. What, remember what it means to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart from the ways of the world. To be set apart, to be different. One writer defined holiness this way, behavior that is in keeping with God's own character. I like it. It's a great, simple definition of what it means to be holy. Behavior that is keeping, in keeping with God's own character. But here's the thing. When you act in a way that reflects God's character by submitting to God's will, I can guarantee that you'll be acting in a way that will set you apart from the ways of the world. You will look different than the world around you. Resisting sexual morality is at its root a submission to God and his ways. Now, I'll spend a little bit more time than I normally do uh, just introducing our passage of Scripture for today. And so here's what I want to do. I want to take two weeks to preach through this passage. Um, I think it's important. I want to make sure that we um, see all that is here. Uh, In these verses that I read, verses 3 through 8, we learn four things that we need to do in order to pursue sexual purity as Christians on our holy walk toward the holy presence of God. But with the remainder of our time today, I just want to look at the first of those. Okay, so it's a two-part message. Uh, next week, we'll look at the other three. We're going to look at the first one today. 
Um, and then I'm going to give you a few few pointers underneath uh, this uh, this point number one, if you will. But this is just number one for today. And uh, the only one that we'll have today will finish up, Lord willing, next week. If we want, church, if we want to walk in holiness when it comes to sex, we must first, and this is where Paul starts in this passage, we must first recognize God's will. We've got to recognize God's will. I'm going to give you a statement in just a moment that will flesh that out just a little bit more. But we just first have to, we have to recognize. By recognize, I mean understand what it is and have a desire to apply it to our lives. We've got to know what God says about this particular area of our lives. Verse 3 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God. I don't know about you, whenever I come across a phrase like that in the Bible, my ears perk up. I mean, that, you can't get much straight, more straightforward than that. For this is the will of God. All right, I want, to see what's, I want to see what's coming after that. Your sanctification. We could spend a lot of time just on that one statement. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I do want to talk about it for a moment. One of the correct questions that we wrestle with a lot in our lives is this. What's God's will for my life? Has anybody ever asked that before? What's God's will for my life? I think if you're a follower of Jesus, you have asked that because you have a desire to obey God's will. So you've asked, what is God's will for my life? But often when we think about that question, we're thinking along the lines of like, what, what college do I go to or what kind of job or career uh, do I get or, or should I get married or who do I get married to or, or how do I spend the retirement years of my life? Often that question comes in moments of transition in our lives. All right, God, I'm kind of coming out of this season of life going into the next. What, what's your will for me? And that's a great question to ask. We, we want to know what God's will for our life is when it comes to those, what I would call some bigger decisions in our lives. And those are, those are major decisions uh, in life. But the thing is, you can go to the right college and choose the right job and marry the right person and choose the right place to live. And you can still miss out on God's will for your life if you fail to pursue sinless living and instead pursue sinful living in the middle of all of those things. Those words sanctification or holiness is the process whereby God leads you down a path of getting rid of sin in your life and replacing it with thinking and speaking and behavior which honors him. It's the process of looking more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. That's what sanctification is. It's the process that God leads us down. And this is God's will for you. So you want to ask this question, God, what is, what's your will for me? Well, his will is that you would be growing in holiness. That's what God's will is in every area of your life. And in this passage specifically, in how you pursue or fail to pursue sexually pure behavior. And so we can answer this question. God, what is God's will for my life? It's this. God's will is to set us apart from the sexual immorality of this world. I want to keep, try to keep it simple. God's will is to set us apart from the sexual immorality of this world. That's what God's will is. That's, that's, part, that's not all of God's will, of course, for our lives. There's other things he wants us to do and not do and those kinds of things. But this is absolutely a part of God's will for our lives. And so if we reject this, then we and, and decide to go the ways of the world in this area of our lives, then we are rejecting the will of God. Now, Paul gives three specifics right after he says that God's will for our lives is sanctification. And, um, and you can see all three of these, especially depending on your translation. Um, and so let me, let me read them and highlight. So after he says the, the will of God is your sanctification, he says that you abstain from sexual immorality, 
that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. One of the things you've got to be ready for, church, one of the things I've got to be ready for when we choose to follow Jesus is we've got to be ready to look different than the world around us. We, we have to. Jesus said, count the cost before, before you choose to follow him. We have to be ready to look different from the world. But it's not always easy. Really, it's actually extremely difficult. Even in our own society, which celebrates individuality. I mean, our society does that. Be your own person. Right? Be, be whoever you want to be. We, we celebrate that. As long as we blend in with society while we're trying to be our own person. Think about it. Our culture says be your own self as long as that means adapting to cultural norms. Our society says stand out in the crowd. As long as you keep moving in the same direction as the crowd. Our society says you can make your own rules as long as those rules are socially acceptable. So sanctification is not natural to our human flesh because it means walking in the opposite direction of the world around us. And that's definitely the case when it comes to honoring God in the area of sex. Let's look at these three requirements here. Three requirements that we've got to implement by God's power if we're going to fully recognize and put into practice God's will in regards to sexual purity. The first that we see is this. Sexual purity requires a zero-tolerance approach to sexual immorality. Sexual purity requires a zero-tolerance approach to sexual immorality. Notice that first, that statement, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Two key words there in that phrase. The word abstain and the word is one word in the Greek, sexual morality. Those are the two key words. Look at the, first, the second word first, sexual morality. Uh, what, what's, that, what's that talking about? Talking about something specific or is it talking about any and all sexually immoral behavior? The second of those. It's talking about any and all sexually immoral behavior. That's what that word um, is used to refer to. Any type of sexual behavior which does not align with God's design and purpose and boundaries for sex. Now, that list is... <laughs> That list is incredibly long. We can't just give an exhaustive list of everything that falls into that category, nor do I think would we want to do that uh, today. But I can give you just a short list, some things that definitely fall under this category of sexual morality. I'm not going to list everything, but um, adultery, homosexuality, pornography, lust, rape, premarital sex, all of those in God's word are very specifically condemned. There's no doubt about it from God's word that those things are wrong. And you can add to that list any sexual behavior that lies outside the boundaries of one man and one woman having committed themselves to the covenant of marriage, engaging in sexual activity only with one another for the glory of God and the good of one another. That's God's boundaries for marriage in a, in a summary statement. And then the second word there, which is the first word, second word we're going to look at in that phrase is abstain. You know what it means to abstain. To abstain from something means I have nothing to do with it. If I abstain from eating ice cream before I go to bed, I've tried to get a little bit better at that because it gives me crazy dreams. But, uh, but if I abstain from eating ice cream before I go to bed, it doesn't mean I drop from three scoops to one scoop. All right? Some of you, have, some of you I know, you told me you like to eat ice cream. You just let out a whole bowl. So it might, you might think abstain means go from a whole bowl to a half a bowl, right? Uh, but, uh, but, but whatever it is, that's not what it doesn't even mean to, to abstain from it before I go to bed. It doesn't even mean go down to just a spoonful of ice cream, which that would be torture, right? Just like 
one spoonful? I mean, golly, it's like eating one potato chip. You just can't do that. You've got to eat more than one. But, but abstain doesn't mean to decrease the involvement. It means to not have any, not taste it at all. Don't even go get it out of the freezer. Better yet, if I'm going to abstain from it, don't even buy it in the first place. So often we're like the child who is warned to not get in the mud puddle, but who sticks the toe of his shoe in and then says, I didn't get all the way in. That's how we are so often. Now, sometimes we say things like, as long as you do it in moderation, it won't hurt you. And that might be the case with some things like ice cream. But it's not the case when it comes to sexual immorality. I like how one writer put it when he wrote this. He said, where things are evil, the Christian attitude is necessarily one of abstention and not of moderation. Brothers and sisters, sexual immorality is evil. It is sin. And as Christians, we don't play around with sin. We run from it. Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, flee sexual immorality. Jesus said this in in the context of speaking about lust, in the context of speaking about sexual immorality. He said this, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Think Jesus took sexual immorality seriously? Absolutely. So this means that any approach to sexual immorality that is anything other than zero tolerance cannot be described as holy in God's sight. Second requirement of a holy walk when it comes to pursuing sexual purity is this. Number two, sexual purity requires a God-centered control of sexual desires. Sexual purity requires a God-centered control of sexual desires. We see this in verses 4 and 5. God's will for our lives is further described there this way. He says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Verse 4 is, uh, is interesting in that it's difficult to translate. You may even have a little bit different translation in your Bible than what I've got, or you may have a footnote down at the bottom that gives you a, a, a secondary possible translation. It's, it's just one of those verses where the Greek is it's just hard. It's hard to know exactly what Paul meant when he, when he wrote this. There's different ways, and scholars debate. Um, literally... Literally, this verse reads this way, that each one of you know or learn how to acquire or possess, those are possible translations, his own vessel in holiness and honor. Let me say that one more time. That each of you know how to or learn how to acquire or possess his own vessel in holiness and honor. Now, scholars are divided on, on what those words acquire and then vessel mean in this context. And, and this uncertainty kind of leads to some deb- debate about verse 4. Some translations say take a wife for yourself and some for himself, and some say control his own body. I know that sounds like two kind of, how do they get those two different phrases from the same words? That's just a part of translation. And the reason I bring that out is not to bore you with, with little details, but just so when you're reading your Bible and you go, what, how, where did that come from? Literally, it could be translated either way, depending on the context. Uh, the pros and the cons of, of each translation is difficult. It's, a, it's really difficult to understand. But either way, taken in the context of the Bible's teaching on sexual behavior, I think we could say it this way. We could say that each one of you know how to only engage in sexual activity within the boundary of heterosexual marriage. 
I think that puts both of those possible translations together into one statement. I'll say that again. That each one of you know how to only engage in sexual activity within the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. I think that explanation goes along with both possible translations. In other words, if you're going to engage in sexual activity, then you better be planning to take a wife for yourself or a husband if you are a woman. And since marriage is the only context in which sexual activity is allowed, then you better learn to control your body so that you don't engage in sexual behavior outside the bounds of marriage. And as that last phrase there in that, in that statement says, we're, we're to act in a manner that's holy towards God and honorable towards others. All the time. All of our behavior must be holy and honorable. Then verse 5 states the same thing, but it states it from a negative standpoint. Verse 4 tells us what to do. Learn to control your body and and sexual desires, keeping it within the context of of heterosexual marriage. But verse 5 tells us what not to do. Not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That phrase, passion of lust, means to be overpowered by desire or to have uncontrolled desires. In the context of this passage, that's, those desires are sexual desires. Now, the Bible is not condemning sexual desire. In fact, that's something that comes with being created in the image of God. It's part of how he created us. But what is being condemned here is uncontrolled sexual desire. When it comes to uncontrolled sexual desire, Paul says that's how the Gentiles, he uses that word to talk about non-believers, those who don't have faith in Christ. That's how they act. And, and what's the thing that sets them apart from us? They don't know God. But Thessalonian believers, Paul is implying, you do know God. And what's his point? His point is this. Those who have been saved by God should act differently when it comes to sexual behavior than those who have not been saved by God. And, and thus, our sexual behavior, whether um, how, how, how we, um, how we uh, engage in that, whether we pursue sexual purity or sexual immorality, it reveals whether or not we actually know God. It's one of the things in our lives that reveals our relationship or lack thereof with God. See, the most important thing about any person is whether that person knows God. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, that, that's the most important thing about anyone, whether that person knows God. Now, in the Bible, to truly know God means to believe in God as he's revealed himself to us, both through his creation and through his word. To not know God means to reject God's self-revelation of himself. And this knowing God goes beyond simply believing that he exists or knowing some facts about him. This knowing God leads to holy behavior. It means worshiping him as the one true God. All of our actions, including our sexual behavior, stem from whether or not we know God in this very personal and real way. I want you to consider for a moment Paul's words to the Romans. Romans chapter 1, and I want you to notice the connection here between proper knowledge of God, which is equated with proper worship of God, and sexual behavior. He puts, he's put these two, two things in the same, uh, same opening chapter to the book of Romans, knowledge of God and sexual behavior. He says this, therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. All right, right off the bat, we know he's talking about sexual immorality. He gave them up in the lust of their hearts to, sex, to, to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because, here's the reason, because, why? They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's a heart problem. It's a worship problem. It's not knowing God in a way that leads me to worship him. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. 
For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The one, one type of sexual morality Paul picks out here is homosexuality. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, there's the knowledge of God part. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. You see, this is the difference maker. Do we know God in such a way that our lives are submitted to his will, or do we not know him in this way? And I've got to tell you that the only way that we're able to live sexually pure lives is to know God in such a way that our behavior then reflects his holiness. And the only way, the only way to know God in this way is through his son, Jesus Christ. You see, all of us are born into this world rejecting God. We're all Romans 1 people. That's how we come to this world. We all exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's who we are. Unless God awakens our dead hearts and breathes new life into them. Remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? This is one of my favorite, favorite stories of Jesus in the Bible. Jesus and Nicodemus. I would love to have been there. That, that night, middle of the night, Nicodemus comes. He's searching. He, he, he wants to believe this is Messiah, but then he's got all this stuff in the world that's telling him, no, don't believe in this guy. And, and he comes like with these questions, what do I do to, to, to belong in the kingdom? And Jesus gives this incredible phrase. He says, you've got to be born again. <laughs> you must be born again. And then he followed that statement up with an explanation of how this happens. How, well, Nicodemus is like, what, what in the world? What God is saying is, Nicodemus, you have exchanged. Yeah, you're a Pharisee. Yeah, you study the Bible all the time. You've given your whole life to that. But you have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. You worship the creation and not the creator. You need God to come in and, and change your heart. Let me tell you how this happens. And this is what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here's the thing. If you are burdened today by past sexual sin or any kind of sin, if you're burdened by an inability to honor God in this area of your life or any area of your life, if you know things about God, but you don't know God in such a way that your life has been set on a different path than the world around you, then in the words of Jesus, you need to be born again. And in the words of Jesus, that means you need to believe in Jesus to save you. And the good news for all people is that Jesus died to take the punishment for all of our sin, our sexual immorality and every other kind of sin that we would commit. He took that punishment upon himself on the cross. And in exchange, he gives us his holiness, his righteousness, so that God, when he looks at us, he doesn't see our sexual morality or any other kind of sin. He sees the holy, spotless righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what it means to know God. And then when we know God in that way, then he fills us with his spirit and we're able to then live a life submitted to God's will, which means pursuing sexual purity. There's one final requirement in this passage that we need to look at. One final requirement in this passage. If we're going to genuinely recognize and submit to God's will for our lives when it comes to sexual purity, and that's this. Sexual purity requires an others-focused attitude towards sexual behavior. 
Sexual purity requires an others-focused attitude towards sexual behavior. Now, by others-focused, I don't mean focusing your sexual desires on others. What I mean is putting the good of others before your sexual desires. That's what I mean by others-focused. Well, I'm putting the good of somebody else before any interest of my own, specifically in this context, any sexual desire of my own. Paul says in verse 6, that no one transgress or wrong his brother in this matter. Sometimes, sometimes even as, as followers of Christ, and it's good, we, we immediately run to sin as an offense against God. It is. <laughs> Sexual morality is a, uh, an offense against God. But it's also an offense against our brothers and sisters. It's an offense against other people. This matter... This matter that Paul speaks about is the matter of sexual behavior. God's word says we're not to engage in sexual behavior, which what some ways you could translate this is oversteps the boundaries of another person. That's what it means to transgress, to overstep the boundaries and then to wrong. That is that is to take advantage of. It's another way you could say that we're not to engage in, in behavior, sexual behavior that would take advantage of another person. I want you to think about it for a minute. Many forms of sexual morality, really, if we if we really thought deeply about it, probably all forms of sexual morality are not only transgressions against God, but against a fellow human. For instance, when you commit adultery, you're not acting in love towards your spouse or the spouse of the person with whom you commit adultery if that person is married. married. You're stealing what belongs to one person and giving it to another. When you engage in premarital sex, you are stealing from that person what only belongs to his or her future spouse. And even if you end up being that person's spouse one day, you've still taken away from him or her what was intended to be given to you once you were married. Plus, you've helped that person engage in simple behavior, and that can never be described as loving. That would always be described as transgressing or wronging another. And when you look at pornography, you're, you're participating in the exploitation of the person that you're looking at. Plus, you're polluting your mind with images which will negatively impact your relationship with your future spouse. If you get married one day, your current spouse, if you're already married, or just your relationships in general, whether you're married or not. That's, just a, that's literally just a few very quick examples of how sexual morality is a transgression of another person. It's really taking advantage of another person for your own personal pleasure. And listen, if, if that, if taking advantage of another person for your own personal pleasure can't be described as wicked, I don't know what is. This is the exact opposite of what Jesus did when he went to the cross. Really, sexual morality, any way that you cut it, is selfish behavior. It's selfish behavior. You know what selfish behavior is? It's worshiping ourselves. You know what that is? Exchanging the creation and the creator. Saying, I'm not going to worship God. I'm going to worship something else. I'm going to worship myself, so I'm going to, I'm going to do selfish things. And then I'm failing to know God. The way that he calls us to know him. What that means is I'm not acting like a, a follower of Jesus, somebody who's been redeemed, who's been born again. I'm acting like I'm still dead in my sins. There's no place, there's no place among God's people, among a follower of Jesus, to act like the world that we've been saved out of. So there you go. First step along the path of sexual purity after trusting in Jesus for salvation is recognizing 
that God's will is to set us apart from the sexual morality of this world. And we put this knowledge of God's will into practice by having a zero-tolerance approach to sexual morality, a God-centered control of our sexual desires, and an others-focused attitude towards sexual behavior. Is this easy? Nope, it's not easy. Paul knows this. And so in the remainder of the passage, he gives some really great motivation for pursuing sexual purity. But we're going to wait till next week to look at that motivation. He gives some great motivation in, in the in, uh, rest of verse 6. I know we stopped halfway in verse 6. Uh, I know that's kind of weird, but that's how, that's how this passage kind of divides up, okay? Uh, so we'll look at the rest of verse 6, verse 7, verse 8 uh, next week. But let me, let me close with just a word of encouragement. Sanctification generally, sexual purity specifically, puts us at odds with the world around us. It means saying no to the ways of the world, but, it, but it's not just saying no. Please, please hear this as we close. I want this to encourage you. It's not just saying no. The pursuit of sexual purity is saying yes to the ways of God. And when we say yes to the ways of God, we are closing ourselves off from the one who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And we are opening ourselves up to the one who came to give us life abundant. To say yes to God's rules for human sexuality is to be protected from the hurt and the shame and the brokenness when we misuse God's good gift. To say yes to God's warnings is to put ourselves in a position to enjoy God's good gift. If he were to lead us down that path of marriage, to say yes to God's way when it comes to sex is to pass down a beautiful legacy of sexual purity rather than a box of broken pieces with all the heartache and brokenness that follows in the wake of sexual immorality. Church, sex is good. It's beautiful. It's fragile. It's a gift from God. God created it. It, it, There's nothing bad about it unless we make it bad by rejecting the Lord's will and replacing it with our own. So as people redeemed by God, as people who know God, our behavior in this area of our lives must align with God's will. So please don't turn a blind eye to God's standards. As we said last week, we must never claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience. We can't say, well, I didn't know. Yeah, you do. It's right here in God's word. If you don't, it's your fault for not reading it. God has told us how to use this good gift. He's given us the rules. Right? Just like my mama gave us those rules. She didn't, she, didn't, she didn't condemn us after we broke one. And we said, well, you never told us. And she was like, yeah, I know. I didn't tell you the rules. Ha ha. No. God's like, I'm telling you right now. It's good. It's beautiful. It's precious. Here's how you keep it that way. So recognize God's will. Embrace his will. And let's pursue sexual purity. Father, uh, we, we come before you and we thank you for your love and your mercy and your grace. God, every one of us is a sinner. Um, God, and, and, and we, could, we could very easily say generally we're, we're, we've all committed some kind of sin in our lives, but God, I, I don't think I'm wrong in, in saying um, that uh, every one of us could confess sexual immorality in our lives. Well, that, that may look different. It may, it may come in different sizes and shapes and forms in our lives as individuals, but Father, Lord, you told us you told us that to lust after someone is is equal to murder, and so God, I'm pre, uh, excuse me, is equal to adultery. Um, just like just like to hate someone is equal to murder, and so I'm pretty sure that that it doesn't matter who I get into a room, Lord. In that room, there's going to be a bunch of people who, according to you, are murderers and adulterers. 
And that includes myself. So God, our only hope is that you have provided a way of, of rescue, a way for us to be forgiven, and you have. And God, you offer that forgiveness very, very freely to anyone who will come to Christ and ask to be forgiven because of what Jesus did on the cross. And God, you completely wash us clean. God, you you make us white as snow. You take every little bit of stain of sin in our lives and you, you get rid of it. And you remember it against us no more. God, I know I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful, Lord, that you have cleansed me of my own sexual morality. Father, I pray that there's someone here today who um, needs to confess some sin in their lives. Father, I pray that, that they would do that, even right now, God, that they would just bow their heads before you and that they would, they would cry out to you and they would confess their sin. Father, they would rest in your forgiveness. Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in sexual purity. Father, um, protect us from the enemy. He's all around us. God, we live in a world, we live in a culture that's just full of sexual immorality. God, it's everywhere we turn. But God, would you you just watch over us? Put a hedge of protection around us, Lord. Help us to walk in holiness in this area of our life. God, you are worthy of our minds, how we think. You're worthy of our speech, how we talk. You're worthy of our actions, what we do. So, Father, help us to pursue holiness by your help, by your power. In Jesus' name.